0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. In
0: 1852, just one year after publishing his nearly unrecognized masterpiece, Moby Dick, Herman Melville wrote the following, quote, By vast pains we mine into the pyramid, by horrible gropings we come to the central room. With joy we espy the sarcophagus, but we lift the lid and no body is there. Appallingly vacant as vast is the soul of man. End quote. The soul of man, vast and vacant, and we, the searchers, eager to approach, appalled by what we see. What will we find at the heart of the novel, Moby Dick? Has Melville uncovered something essential or merely thrown a million shadows against an inscrutable wall? We count down essential questions five, four, three, two, and one. Today, on the History of Literature. Oh, hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the History of Literature podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, the host and captain of the ship. I'll try to be benevolent, but hey, I'll be quick to throw you in the brig. Don't test me. I'm just kidding. I'm more of the, wait, you mean I can marry people out here? (laughs) Who's in love? (laughs) Come on over. I'm that sort of captain, the one who's free with the rations and even freer with the grog. And don't worry about this podcast sinking. My shoes are nailed to the deck. You'll all have plenty of room in the lifeboats and I'll be in Davy Jones's locker podcasting all the way down. Perhaps. We have five more questions about Moby Dick. I won't bury the lead. The first question on our list today is, is Moby Dick the great American novel? But we aren't there yet. First, let's check in on our little Czech oddball, Mr. Kafka, Franz to his friends. We're looking at some of the 99 startling little factoids that his biographer shined up and put on display in the book, Is That Kafka? And to select the number for us, we ask the gods of Google to randomize, randomize, randomize a number for us. Here we go. Google at the ready. One through 99. Plug it in and see what we get. Generate 25. 25, a good sturdy number, a square and a, well, it's not a prime number, is it? An odd number, disguising itself as a prime, at least enough to fool me. Although a square is never a prime. Is it is there a square that's a prime? It can't be except well wait one one number one, one times one is one no, no wait, one I'm getting news now. one has been ruled out. I don't see why, poor one deserves to have that honor. It's so close. if Pluto can be ruled, not a planet, let's make one a prime and a square. Why not? It's so close. To being both, one times one is square and itself and one makes it prime. That should be enough to qualify. Damn it, maybe then it wouldn't be so lonely. One, it would have something to brag about, a little trophy for its case. Coming soon to an app near you. The History of Mathematics with Jack Wilson, the podcast your math teachers beg you not to listen to. Okay, so. Number 25. While you're on a break, I will be furiously reading number 25, which it turns out is in the emotions section and is called Kafka Meditates on a Painting. Okay. Surely he's normal when he does this, right? Can he meditate on a painting like a reasonable, intelligent person? Or will he get all weird about it? Let's find out after this. Okay, we're reading number 25, Kafka meditates on a painting, and I have to say, this is very, very Kafka, not as quirky, not as bizarre, perhaps, as some stories, but a window into this poor, tortured man's soul. This one tells you everything you need to know about Kafka and modern human beings, really. So, Kafka is looking at a painting, and he talks about himself in the third person, as the person looking at the painting. The painting is of some people on a boat enjoying a summer's day. Actually, it's a Sunday, as we know from the title of the painting. The people are all wearing summer garb, dresses for the ladies, hats for both the men and the women. This is an English painting, as Kafka's biographer helpfully tells us. And he shows us the painting right in the book. It's uh, more than one boat, actually. It's a small river or canal, maybe, crowded with boats, and the people are smiling and laughing. And of course, Kafka doesn't imagine himself on one of those boats. Being among those people, he imagines himself standing on the banks watching. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the painting's perspective is not of the river running from left to right, but from top to bottom of the canvas. Almost as if your viewpoint is that you're hovering over the river, standing on a bridge. Perhaps you, as viewer, are not on the bank. In other words, but Kafka sees himself there on the bank off to the side where nobody else is. And he looks out at the boaters who are having fun and he says, I want to be there, but I can't be. I wasn't born to this group. So many things would have to change about my background, my whole life, in order for me to be one of those people on the boats. But he doesn't just feel excluded in a sort of I'm-not-a-popular-kid-why-can't-I-have-nice-things-too sort of way, it turns very dark and existential. Let's hear him tell it. Of course he—this is him talking about himself in the third person— of course he would have loved to take part. He was practically yearning to. But he had to tell himself in all honesty that he was closed off from their festivities. It was impossible for him to insinuate himself there. It would have required so much preparation that not only this one Sunday, but many years, and he himself would have passed on even if the time had been willing to stand still here. No other outcome would have been possible. His whole genealogy, his upbringing, his physical training would have had to go so differently. So that was how far he was from those holidaymakers, but at the same time he was very close, and that was even harder to grasp. After all, they were people like him. Nothing human could be fully alien to them, and if you were to search their minds, you would have to find that the same feeling that dominated him and excluded him from their boating trip was present in them as well, except that it did not come close to dominating them, but only lurked in some dark corners, end quote. I'm not part of these holiday makers. I want to be, but I'm not. This is Kafka's point of view, by the way, which is fine, c'est la vie, except I'm so close to them. I'm running right the bank. I'm on the verge of being a part of their activities. I'm on the verge of being them. And because they are human beings, they feel a range of emotions. They feel everything human they feel everything I do. It's all part of their experience too. So they must know how I feel. That must be part of them. The feeling of exclusion must be in them as well. They must know it. This longing to be something or someone that one isn't. So does that mean in that way we can connect as humans? Nope. No such luck. Because the difference is not that they can't feel that feeling it's that they are not dominated by that feeling. And I am. Look at Kafka. Poor Kafka. It's not that he's excluded. It's it's that he's excluded, but close. There are two divides in this brief little passage. The bank to the river, that's an insurmountable gap. One cannot cross it. You're on the boats having fun or you're not. And There's a divide between the type who can identify with feelings like alienation but who doesn't live life dominated by it, those are the happy people, and the other type, Kafka, who is completely dominated by this feeling, who cannot get over it. I get the feeling that Kafka, had he lived, had he been alive, to see the readers who discovered him and revered him would have said... Mm, Yes, I understand that you get it, but you really don't get it. Happy people don't. They can't. Maybe the only way to bridge the gap would have been for Kafka to become a happy person. Here we've thought it was the other way around, that he was trying to help the world see the darkness as he did. Maybe the way to view Kafka is that he was hoping for the world to show him the light, which he could never see, which I guess is actually his point. So there we go. Back around circle complete. Kafka meditates on a painting, and we meditate on Kafka, and the world feels like Melville's vast and empty sarcophagus as we continue our search for the human soul. Let's see if we can find one in Moby Dick. Not in the whale, although that's an intriguing place to look, but the novel. Question number 10 on our countdown of 10 essential questions. Wait, I said 10. We're at number five. We did 10 through 6 last time. Question number 5 is the big daddy of them all. 5 is Moby Dick the great American novel. Hmm. Mhm. The great American novel. The G A N the gan as Henry James called it, the white whale of American literature. Well, that's that's sort of funny to say, isn't it? Maybe Melville should Get the prize on that alone, that his novel introduced the white whale, which the great American novel certainly is, something that has obsessed people, novelists and critics alike, something people, are those people like that are constantly chasing it, something that wins in the end. The concept of the great American novel is not harpooned and dragged to the side of the literary, good ship literature. Dead and killed with the spoils going to the hunter and the crew. It's the unfathomable beast that splinters the boat and swims away, waiting for the next fool to come along with his or her puny little vessel on the hunt once again. Are the other countries obsessed with the novel of their country? Is there a big movement to say, well... Who's written the great French novel or the great Mexican novel or the great Dutch novel? Is there a push to say, I've written the great American poem or painted the great American painting or made the great American film with all caps built the, or initial caps built the great American sewing machine? How did we get started on this with novels? Oh, I write the great American blog. This is the Great American Podcast. Why is there one? Is it because America was coming of age in the age of great novels that the great American novel became a phrase or because America, a teeming land of immigrants and experiments, successes and sins, is kind of one giant novel itself? Only the novel form could properly... Do justice to it, the novel at its best, and most expansive, the biggest scope. There's no real reason to defend the obsession with a great American novel. Almost as soon as the phrase was introduced in the 19th century, it A, caught on like wildfire, and B, was mocked mercilessly. Within a few years, it had become a cliché, the sort of concept that people in the know could laugh at. Could my, the great American novel? Why should there be one? Why should there be only one? Who gets to choose? The whole debate reminds me a little of a conversation I had with a friend of mine who has three kids, and I had just had my second kid, and this friend said to me, you know, as a parent, it's become more clear to me than ever that birth order decides everything. Everything about a kid and his personality can be, can be traced back to birth order. And I said, oh, right, I see what you mean. The older child is the natural leader and the younger one defers. And my friend nodded sagely. Ah, yes, birth order. And I said, but wait, I know families where that's not the case. The younger child, in fact, is so determined to get out of the older one's shadow that that he or she becomes an alpha type a strong leader, stronger, the strongest. And my friend nodded sagely and said, "Mm-hmm." birth order strikes again. <laughs> so if we were trying to figure out birth order and how it determined personality, we might try to test this hypothesis by saying, well, okay, birth order determines everything. An older child must be X. And then we'd look at older children to see if they are X. And we'd look at second and and third borns and so on to see if they were not X. But that wasn't the system my ingenious friend had constructed. The system he constructed was that you look backwards and make arguments to fit the system. If you have a child who's X, you, you look back at the birth order and say, aha, look at this. He's X because this is where he was in the birth order. And if he's not X, you say, aha, look at this. He's compensating for his birth order. And that's kind of the problem with the great American novel debate. You can say, well, a great American novel, hmm, what must it be and look like? And what must the features be? Well, must deal with democracy. That's important. It must have the sweep of a continent. That's important, too. And it must be about the frontier. And it must be about, let's see, new versus old. Had to shed Europe after all. It must be about race, naturally. It must be about class, of course. It must be about hard work. It must be about history. It must be about guilt. It must be about north versus south. And on and on you go. And chances, so you're not going to say all those. So you're going to pick three or four. And the chances are that the factors you pick as being most central... To a great American novel happen to be the qualities that your preferred novel, your preferred candidate for the great American novel displays most prominently. And chances are that your candidate displays every conceivable factor, too, if you squint hard enough. So if a critic comes along and says, well, you know, you chose The Great Gatsby as your novel, but it's not really about X, you look hard and say, actually, it is. Actually, it is. Here's a phrase, or here's a character, or here's something Fitzgerald said. Here's, it's in there. Is Moby Dick about moving westward across the continent? Well, well, it's not pioneers in covered wagons, but it's about pushing boundaries, isn't it? It's about global expansion. So, yes, of course, it's the Atlantic and the Pacific. That's... <laughs> circumscribes the continent anyway. There we go. It's all about the frontier, the frontier of the sea, says the advocate for Moby Dick as the great American novel. And sort of, says a fair-minded critic, maybe maybe not quite as much as, as Huck Finn setting out across the territory or or other books. The three nominees mentioned the most I would say, for the great American novel, are Moby Dick, The Great Gatsby, and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. When this became a real debate, kind of in the mid-20th century, those were the three that stood out as the candidates, and I'd say Beloved has been added to that short list now. Is The Great Gatsby about race relations? Absolutely, says the Fitzgerald supporter. Well, um, maybe says a fair-minded critic i mean it's there it's not not there but is it really there is it taking it on is it addressing it directly it's definitely about the american dream so there we go we can this is the advocate for great cats but you can say you know what the american dream is the most important quality and it it really gets that one right so it wins the prize Martin Amis awarded the prize of great American novel to Saul Bellows, The Adventures of Augie March. The Library Journal said it's the grapes of wrath. Norman Mailer endorsed Hemingway's vote for Huck Finn. John Scalzi for the LA Times says it's got to be something that Americans all read. So it's probably going to be either To Kill a Mockingbird with Gatsby and the Scarlet Letter close behind. Those are on the most high school reading lists, after all. Well, the Scarlet Letter is good. It's history. It's about religious judgment. It's about building a society based on shame and the individual struggling to overcome that. It's about sexual liberty, about harsh puritanical judgment. Those are good American themes, and it's a great, great novel. Is it the great American novel? Well, feel free to argue that it is. Take up the cudgels for Beloved and Infinite Jest and John Dos Passos' USA Trilogy and even the documentary films of Frederick Wiseman. Some say Uncle Tom's Cabin is the great American novel, although it's not actually a great novel. <laughs> it's a good one, not a great one. Some say it's The Wizard of Oz or Gone with the Wind. It's a little ridiculous. To, oh, The Catcher in the Rye is often mentioned. Do We really need to choose... Just one of these novels, people haven't even mentioned Faulkner yet. And yet, and yet, and yet, the standard by which all of these books are measured, the one they're measured against pretty much is Moby Dick. It's the New York City of American novels. You can say that you like Boston or San Francisco or Los Angeles or Chicago or New Orleans or Seattle better than New York. And those are all great cities. But if you're making the case for, let's say, Philadelphia as the greatest Americans, as the great American city, you don't necessarily reach for the comparison with San Diego, right? You don't say, okay, Philadelphia is the great American city. Here's why it is and San Diego isn't. But in your argument you will likely wind up explaining why Philadelphia is better than New York. Moby Dick is like that. It's been around for so long, and it's such a rich book, and it has so much in it, so many ideas, so many themes, so much to ponder and ruminate upon. So much of it is so closely tied to this crazy nation we have, the United States, with all of its strengths and weaknesses, that it's sort of the line in the sand. It's the bar. That needs to be cleared, as Adam Kirsch wrote, in reviewing a book called *The Great American Novel* by Lawrence Buell. There are a lot of there are a bunch of different paths to writing the quote unquote great American novel. One is to be the opposite of celebratory. Great American novels, Buell wrote, quote, are not expected to be rituals of self-congratulation like July 4 celebrations or Hollywood melodramas. On the contrary. The historical record suggests that serious contenders are much more likely to insist that national greatness is unproven, that its pretensions are hollow, and that the ship of state is going down. End quote. But then there's another path, the second path. This is the one, quote, the one originated by Moby Dick, the grandfather of all Gans, which tries to encompass all of American life in almost sociological fashion. Through sheer breadth of vision. They are sprawling performance of encyclopedic scope with multiple agendas from the ethnographic to the medical metaphysical. End quote. Medical physical. Metaphysical. That's not the only type of GAN, Buell identifies four or five, four or five. <laughs> having trouble with my pronunciation today. <sighs> Buell identifies four or five types of Gann that are commonly used in arguing for a great American novel, but if it's your type, then Moby Dick is your book. Me, I'll go with an American shelf. Ten books at least, and probably 20 or more, but Moby Dick is definitely on it. Moving on, our next question. Number four, critical blindness? This flows out of our last question. If this is the great American novel, how the heck did everyone miss it at the time? You might go all meta and say, well, isn't that all the more American that critics overlook its strengths? Being, being half-blind is kind of an, kind of an American trait, after all, and people like happy stories rather than tragedies, and they like their entertainment easy rather than complicated, so... Isn't it we you could say it is American to treat a masterpiece this way? We don't miss bestsellers, but we might overlook genius. We're better at commerce than we are at art. Okay, set that argument aside. That's a little too clever for me. I'm just interested in this. Why would critics think that this the great American novel, the granddaddy of great American novels or great American novel candidates? Why would contemporary critics think that it was the work of a lunatic? Why, even today, does a prominent university press refer in its marketing materials to quote, anyone attempting to read Moby Dick? End quote. Attempting? Do we attempt to read Lolita or The Catcher in the Rye or Blood Meridian? Maybe we do attempt to read some of the others often cited. Gravity's Rainbow, for example and you'd say that about ulysses too you'd attempt people can attempt to read ulysses or proust those might be the greatest novels ever so maybe that's a point in its favor maybe that there needs to be enough complexity that it's not just a simple thing gatsby for all of its beauty is kind of like a a fable by comparison it's extremely easy to read the power comes later sneaks up on you. I think for Melville's book, it's that the book is not smooth. It's raw and ragged. The experience of reading it changes on you. You think you're settling into a narrative, a straight journey, a quest where our hero is getting ready. Hearing the call of the sea, and then you get all these interruptions and all this nearly undigested research. You get compendiums of different topics and then bang, you're back on the ship. The captain is crazy. The chase is on, except it isn't. And the whale doesn't show up until the very end. You could say, well, that's more like life, isn't it? That's more like the real world or that's more like America, however you want to argue it. But that's when you've accepted the book's greatness and you're looking backwards to explain why it's great! If no one told you anything about this book, if it had zero history whatsoever and not much pedigree, other than it was written by an author who was known for his his best-selling adventure tales, you were reading it for the first time, you might think, ah, oh, they must have fired the editor over there at such and such press. Somebody failed to point out to Mister Melville that he's he's written uh, Frankenstein's monster of a book here. Multiple books are crashing together between two covers. You might get bored. When you're reading the novel and think, oh, I'd rather read one nonfiction book about whaling and one rip cracking adventure novel. And in fact, that's what a lot of the reviewers did. This is an ill compounded mixture of romance and matter of fact, one reviewer wrote. But another reviewer kind of got it. He said, who would have looked for philosophy in whales or for poetry in blubber? Yet few books which professedly deal in metaphysics or claim the parentage of the muses contain as much true philosophy and as much genuine poetry as the tale of the Pequod's whaling Expedition. It is not a mere tale of adventures, but a whole philosophy of life that it unfolds. Well, readers didn't buy it. Literally. I'm reminded of a comment I heard about a professor reading a PhD dissertation. He wrote, this is incredible. It may be revolutionary. It may be. Not it is revolutionary. It may be. Kind of hedging one's bets. To say, I think think that's what happened with Moby Dick. Early critics said, this is an incredible book. Implied. Maybe someday we'll think of it as great. Wake me or my grandchildren if that happens. But if not, that's okay too. There will be another novel that comes out next week and more next month month, and lots more next year. Okay, let's take our final break and come back with our top three questions about Moby Dick. Question number three. When and how did this book get rediscovered? We've talked about the contemporary reviews. A few good, most bad. In our episode on Melville, we looked at his final decades of life when he lived in near obscurity and how the obituaries noted his former fame among those old enough to remember. The general opinion of Melville was that he was a popular writer, had once made a bit of a splash, and isn't it funny how time moves on and someone whom everyone knows and reads ends up working in anonymity for 19 years right under our noses here in New York City. That's the point of the most obituaries. And here we are today, and Moby Dick and its author are hugely famous. It didn't need to happen this way, it might not have, but it did. How? How? We say the book was rediscovered and scholars came to learn and scholars found and readers eventually dot, 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 and make it seem like it was all inevitable as if a great book just is always there waiting to be discovered. We don't know. We don't know that it would have happened for sure. What we do know is that two men were instrumental in bringing Melville out of obscurity and in pointing the world toward Moby Dick as an underappreciated work of art the year was 1919 Melville's 100th birthday year as it happened america had grown older a few generations of american writers had come and gone enough time had passed for american critics to start praising and assessing in categorizing the accomplishments of some forerunners. Walt Whitman's centenary was that year, too. He and Melville were born the same year. But that one was easy to commemorate because Whitman was still famous, still revered, already held up as the great American poet, or one of them. And a professor at Columbia named Carl Van Dorn, Does that name ring a bell? You may know that name Van Dorn from the movie Quiz Show. Actually, let's do a little side note here on the Van Dorns. Remember how in Quiz Show, the movie that was set in the 1950s about the television show, the game show called 21, and the scandal that was famous at the time, this was the early years of television, there was a huge popular game show called 21. And the scandal was that there was a... A winner, this is the character played by John Turturro in the movie, that he was winning everything and the producers wanted a a hero who was less ethnic. They thought it would be better for ratings, better for the country. So they found someone to beat John Turturro's character. They tapped the character played by Ray Fiennes to be their star. And they gave him the answers to make sure that he would win. And it all blew up in their faces. Congressional hearings and so on there's a moment where one of the producers is looking around for a candidate the or the one of the producers provides a candidate it says i got the guy and the other says something like is he wholesome is he who we're looking for and and the producer just says he's a van dorn a van dorn the name in the 1950s meant education And class that came from Carl. That came from uh, who was the cheater? Charles Van Dorn was the cheater. His father, Mark Van Dorn, was a poet and a famous critic. And his uncle is the Van Dorn we're interested in today, Carl Van Dorn. Carl Van Dorn is who we're talking about now. In 1939, Carl Van Dorn wrote a biography of Benjamin Franklin that won the Pulitzer Prize. Both Mark and Carl, the two brothers, taught at Columbia for decades. Okay. This is before 1930. This is 1919. The world is lauding Walt Whitman as the great American poet who's turning 100. And Carl Van Dorn says, hang on. Hang on. There's another guy who turned 100 this year. Also a poet. But what he really should be known for are his novels. Herman Melville? Really? You mean that guy who wrote Typee and Omoo and then just disappeared? He cranked out those lunatic novels like Moby Dick and Pierre? That's who you're you want us to remember? Yes," said Van Dorn, and he urged one of his colleagues to take a look at Herman Melville. And this is pretty interesting, who he tapped on the shoulder. He didn't go to the, the American Literature Department and try to persuade someone, the, somebody there. I don't know if they had an American Literature Department at Columbia yet, but you know what I mean. He didn't look for an expert in 19th century American literature or, or an expert in novels or anything like that. He found a specialist in Shakespeare. How rich is that? It's as if he said, who's going to appreciate my man Melville in this book, Moby Dick? Maybe we need to go a little outside the box. Someone who's looking only at American literature might think Melville was a lunatic. Someone steeped in Shakespeare might see the value here. So Van Doren happened to be an editor at the Nation magazine. He could hire people to write articles and essays for him there, give a little extra jingle in the pocket of a a professor who was looking to make his name and feed his family. And one night at dinner, he was seated next to such a professor, a Shakespeare expert named Raymond Weaver, who was like him, a professor at Columbia, but slightly younger, definitely hadn't been at Columbia for very long, not as established, but a good writer and a Shakespeare fanatic. And Van Dorn said, hey, Weaver... How about writing a piece for the nation on Herman Melville? He was born a hundred years ago. We could run the piece in commemoration of his birth year, and Weaver said Melville he knew him as the author of Typee, which he had started reading when he was younger, and he had stopped, and he hadn't read Melville since then. and so he said, "Well, an article about Herman Melville he had two quotes. Two quotes have been handed down to us about what he thought. His first is, he said, this will be child's play. And his second was, this will be about a day's job. <laughs> Instead, <laughs> cut to many years later. Instead, he went to the library and found not only that he loved Melville, that Shakespearean in him loved him, that Moby Dick in particular was the stuff of greatness, Shakespearean style greatness, but But he found, when he was at the library, that there was no biography of Melville. None had been done. He couldn't find anything about the guy. So he wrote the article for The Nation, and here he had a full head of steam. He said, Moby Dick was born in hellfire and baptized in an unspeakable name. And, quote, it reads like a great opium dream and has some of the most finished comedy in the language. End quote. Van Dorn loved it and urged Weaver to keep going. He said, you should write a full-fledged biography of Melville, and Weaver agreed. Weaver went and found Melville's granddaughter, who liked Weaver enough to trust him. She had all of his old papers and so on, and she let Weaver take a look, and Weaver dove in and discovered, among other treasures, an unfinished But nevertheless, lengthy manuscript Billy Budd, which Melville had been working on at his death. And that was quite a find. No one knew that Melville was still writing fiction. They thought he'd given it up for poetry. And Billy Budd is very good. One of Melville's best. Van Dorn was working on Melville, too, in his own way. And so, after that Nation article had whetted the literary world's appetite for Melville, the two of them each came out with books in 1921— that were very important in moving things along in terms of bringing Melville back into the public eye. Weaver's biography, which was called Herman Melville, Mariner and Mystic, was the first biography slash critical study of Melville, the first full-length book on him, that is, and it sent lots of readers back to explore Melville's works, especially Moby Dick, which Weaver declared his undoubted masterpiece. Van Dorn meanwhile was writing his book called The American Novel. That book is a hybrid of authors and movements with chapters on romances and realism and so on but the author the authors I should say whom he singled out for special attention are James Fenimore Cooper, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Mark Twain and Henry James all very familiar names in 1921 and one that was not as familiar Herman Melville. The Melville Revival was on, born in Columbia University, on the island of Manhattan, among the Manhattos, as Ishmael might say, but from there, flowing across the rest of the country, and we've never really looked back. Melville has been a staple of world literature ever since. Question number two, black and white? Question mark. When Moby Dick came out, hardly anyone assessed it for its treatment of race. Critics talk about it as a novel. Is it adventurous? Is it thrilling? Is it informative about whales? What's the language like? And so on. A London publisher took all the more technical chapters about whaling and put them in an appendix. Which was kind of an act of barbarity, really. They must have thought they were helping out readers who didn't want a mishmash but wouldn't have minded getting two books for the price of one. One fiction, one non. But it really butchers Melville's vision. That gives you a sense of the way the book was treated upon publication. And an adventure story crossed with a how-to manual. Ah, pick your poison, people. Sometimes a critic would comment on the religious themes. They objected to what they called Melville's blasphemy. Or they praised him for being... Uh, non-sectarian. Critics took notice of the book's allegorical aspects and symbolism and so on. But the bigger, grander themes of identity, all the reasons why we value the book today, really, why it seems bigger in scope and a worthy candidate for the great American novel and its dealings with issues like national character and guilt and destiny and deceit, books that want to take that on when it comes to the United States have two launching pads. One is the idea of a people landing on a shore that's already populated and conquering the land and the people who are already there, pushing across a continent through everything from land grabs to genocide. What kind of a people does that and what does it mean and what has it meant? And the second thing, the second great launching pad is the ownership of slaves, the institution of slavery and the justification of of that institution by inventing all kinds of racial and racist theories and then living with that awareness, not just living with it by profiting by it. And then for the next century or two, living with that legacy. If you want to write the great American novel, young novelist, you'd better figure out a way to tackle topics like that, because those two things haunt the United States and have been there since the beginning. We recognize that now. That's how we read. That's a factor in what we expect from literature and what we notice when it's not there. If Moby Dick were published today, a critic would go straight to the passages that deal with these themes and a few other topics too. They'd look at LGBTQ plus issues. There's plenty there to consider on this nearly all-male floating vessel. But they would probably point out there are hardly any women in the book, which is a downside in my opinion. Not that an artist needs to write about anything just to check boxes or anything like that. I'm glad there, there aren't women characters tacked on the way Hollywood will sometimes add a token character just because, just to reach a demographic or just to try to make some kind of point. But these are choices. These are choices, and they're fair game for us to comment upon. The choice here is, well, let's recreate the world as it is at sea, which is full of men and often men only. Okay, fine, fair enough. We don't need to dwell on it here. But if we're going to give Melville credit for having a multiracial cast of characters, we should also note that he's basically treating half of humanity, only half of humanity, leaving out women altogether. Okay. And parenthetical rant. Okay. Where were we? The black and white issues. If a critic today were reading the just published Moby Dick for the first time, that critic would go straight to the places that deal with race, where the themes of race, prejudice, ignorance, redemption, original sin, guilt, revenge, fraternity, and so on. Look for those places where those issues like that are addressed and see how it's done. Graded on a curve, Moby Dick gets an A-plus here for making that pretty easy to sink our teeth into. I don't mean that Melville is, is some kind of visionary person or that he's right. Whatever that means, when you're talking about fiction, saying the right thing is sometimes not good fiction. Saying the wrong thing can be good fiction. But saying something is necessary, isn't it, for a great book? A 21st century sensibility, as sensitive and aware as a professor today might be, or a, a reviewer, a cultural critic, a good blogger. I don't mean that Melville was, was saying the things that a person like that might say. I mean as someone, as a novelist who is offering up raw material, thematic material as relevant for readers to consider, who's unafraid to address the thorniest of topics and demand that we deal with them. Melville is about as good as it gets for his era. I mean, one of the characters, one of the chapters is called The Whiteness of the Whale. (laughs) There you go, people. In case you need a clue, in case you need a a signpost, let's have a chapter about whiteness. Readers today would go straight to Queequeg, straight to Pip, the black cabin boy, and to chapters like the whiteness of the whale and say, here's what's in the book. Is Is this right? Does it advance our understanding? Does it expose dilemmas that we're still wrestling with? Does it Do these characters and this chapter, do they surface issues? Has Melville surfaced issues that society sometimes submerges? What's in the novel? Is it the important stuff? Toni Morrison says that it's there. And she furthermore says that Melville, in her reading, always seems to have even more than he's trying to say, that he's trying to say, I should say, than what he actually says. There's more under the surface. There's more depth here. There's more. It's what we want from a great novel, isn't it? Not just that it stamps its dough with a cookie cutter and gives us a a neat star or a snowman or some shape we recognize so that we say, oh, look at this, a snowman. We want our novels and our novelists to take all that dough which, of course, is life itself, and say, my God, do you know what's actually in this stuff? Or I'm eating fistfuls of this dough unbaked. Look at me. I must have lost my mind. We don't want the routine and the neat, the precise cookie cutter that we already know. We want the jarring and compelling. We want to be shaken out of our stupor. We want the unexpected but that doesn't mean absurd. Sometimes that means clear-sighted. Sometimes that means shaking off the conventional thought and seeing things for what they are. Getting to the heart of things. Boiling it down. And presenting it for... I'm reminded of the great line in Dostoevsky, Brothers Karamazov. And the character is asked, Why do you hate so-and-so so much? And the character responds with what Dostoevsky's narrator says is with shameless impudence. He says, I'll tell you, he has done me no harm when I once played a nasty, dirty trick on him and I have hated him for it ever since. End quote. I have hated him for it ever since. He didn't do anything wrong. He did me no harm. And yet something in me played a nasty, dirty trick on him, and I hate him for it, for the trick I played on him. It's an astonishing encapsulation of human psychology toward others. This thing that happens, this feeling we have of being selfish or cruel, whatever in us drives us to do it, and then whatever in us drives us to try to justify it. The guilt of the shame of that. The shame of our dirty trick that turns into hatred for our victims. It's not really about the victim at all. He did nothing wrong. He did me no harm. It's about the perpetrator. Apply that feeling to a society. And you have one of the central stories of the American experiment. It's not the only story. There's a lot of good too, but it is there. That feeling, and Melville knows it, and he puts it firmly into the pages of his book. There are lots of moments to choose here. As examples, Melville, or Ishmael, says, Queequeg is George Washington cannibalistically developed. Or in other words, the exterior and trappings might be different. For Queequeg, because he was raised in a different culture, but he's as noble and heroic and dignified as the finest examples that we can come up with. George Washington. When he and when Ishmael and Queequeg, having bonded as something like brothers or friends or comrades or spiritual spouses, take your pick, when they walk through town looking for a ship to board, Ishmael says, quote, For some time we did not notice the jeering glances of the passengers, a lubber like assembly who marveled that two fellow beings should be so companionable, as though a white man were anything more dignified than a whitewashed Negro. End quote. Look to character, to personality, judge based on content and actions, not on anything as unimportant as skin color. That's Ishmael's point. Keep that in mind when you read The Whiteness of the Whale, where Ishmael runs through all the places in history and culture, Where white is equated with goodness and purity, including on the surface, on the skin of European descended people, or in his words, this preeminence in the color white applies to the human race itself, giving the white man ideal mastership over every dusky tribe. End quote. Aha! One says, my God, Melville. Melville. Just like all the rest, isn't he? Here's Ishmael casually advocating for white supremacy, the white man's burden, justifying colonialist expansion, etc. But the passage is much slippier, slippier, much more slippery than that. It's much more thoughtful and thought-provoking. And best of all, it's not a casual aside. It's at the heart of the book. It is, of course, from chapter 42, The Whiteness of the Whale, which begins, What the white whale was to Ahab has been hinted. What at the time he was to me as yet remains unsaid. A few sentences later, Ishmael says, quote, it was the whiteness of the whale that above all things appalled me, end quote. He worries that he can't fully express why, and he says, how can I hope to explain myself here, but in some dim, random way explain myself I must, else all these chapters might be naught. end quote. If I don't deal with this, nothing else matters. Now, I cheated a little when I selected that quote before about this preeminence in the color white applies to the human race itself. I hope critics don't stop there. Most of them probably don't, because as Toni Morrison pointed out, the phrase does not begin with this preeminence in the color white. It begins with the word though. The whole paragraph uses this construction, though, Though kings were pulled on white steeds, and though white is the color of Easter, and so on. It's, but you know what? I call this a paragraph. It's really just one sentence. I haven't read much of Moby Dick aloud. So why don't I read this sentence? It's a tour de force, one of the greatest sentences I have ever read in a novel. I'll read this one. Pause for a moment. And I'll pause for a moment after I read it. And then I'll read the sentence after it. Together, these two sentences that I'm going to read are 500 words, precisely and exactly 500 words, which I don't think is intentional, but which feels significant to me. Nevertheless, it's the length of a brief essay, a Shakespearean prose poem, a history lesson, a 500-word Carlylean look at Moby Dick, at the whiteness of the whale, and it makes me Want to end the show with it, although I did promise you a top five, and I still have one more to go. We're still on number two. I'm not sure number one is going to top this, drop the mic sentence of Moby Dicks, but we'll see. So, maybe we'll... (laughs) Somehow we got to get out of (laughs) here. Maybe we'll just cap this off, hit the theme, hit the theme song, and get out. Find some coffee to cling to and float away to safety. We have been stove by a Melville, sir. Okay, here we go. One sentence to rule them all. Here we go. Quote, Though in many natural objects, whiteness ref- refiningly enhances beauty as if imparting some special virtue of its own, as in marbles, japonicas, and pearls, and though various nations have in some way recognized a certain royal preeminence in this hue, even the barbaric, grand old kings of Pigu placing the title Lord of the White Elephants above all their other magniloquent descriptions of dominion, and the modern kings of Siam unfurling the same snow-white quadruped in the royal standard, and the Hanoverian flag bearing the one figure of a snow-white charger, and the great Austrian empire, Caesarean heir to the overlording rome having for the imperial color the same imperial hue and though this preeminence in it applies to the human race itself giving the white man ideal mastership over every dusky tribe and though Besides all this, whiteness has been even made significant of gladness, for among the Romans a white stone marked a joyful day, and though in other mortal sympathies and symbolizings this same hue is made the emblem of many touching noble things, the innocence of brides, the benignity of age, though among the red men of America the giving of the white belt of wampum was the deepest pledge of honor. Though in many climes, whiteness typifies the majesty of justice in the ermine of the judge, and contributes to the daily state of kings and queens drawn by milk-white steeds, though even in the higher mysteries of the most august religions it has been made the symbol of the divine spotlessness and power, by the Persian fire-worshippers, the white-forked flame being held the holiest on the altar, and in the Greek mythologies, great Jove himself being made incarnate in a snow-white bull. And though to the noble Iroquois the midwinter sacrifice of the sacred white dog was by far the holiest festival of their theology, that spotless faithful creature— being held the purest envoy they could send to the Great Spirit with the annual tidings of their own fidelity. And though directly from the Latin word for white all Christian priests derive the name of one part of their sacred vesture, the alb, or tunic, worn beneath the cassock, and though among the holy pomps of the Romish faith White is specially employed in the celebration of the passion of our Lord, though in the vision of St. John, white robes are given to the redeemed, and the four and twenty elders stand clothed in white before the great white throne, and the Holy One that sitteth there white like wool. Yet for all these accumulated associations, with whatever is sweet and honorable and sublime, there yet lurks an elusive something in the innermost idea of this hue, which strikes more of panic to the soul than that redness which affrights in blood. End quote. For all of those associations we have, everyone listed, where white is good and pure and power and divinity, There's something that is panicking to the soul, more panicking than the redness of blood. And then that's all one sentence, what I read. And then the next sentence is, this elusive quality it is, which causes the thought of whiteness when divorced from more kindly associations and coupled with any object terrible in itself to heighten that terror to the furthest bounds. End quote. What do we want from a novel? Is it to serve us up platitudes? Is it to ignore the darkest corners of human history, human psychology, and the human spirit? Or is it to explore all of it shadows as well as light, heartbreak as well as romance, cruelty along with kindness? I think the answer speaks for itself. We have Ishmael and Ahab and lots of white people floating on this ship. We also have Queequeg. Several other representatives from far-off lands and Pip, the black cabin boy who serves as a kind of fool to Ahab's leer, speaking truths, in his madness, Ahab is insane. He's monomaniacal, a floating dictator, the emblem of human beings at their very worst. The only time he shows any kind of goodness is in his feelings toward Pip. Pip goes out on a whaleboat with Stub. When another crew member is injured, Pip has to go. This isn't his natural job. And by the way, this is a hugely dangerous job. These are the little boats that are rowed out. And then when the whale is harpooned, the line goes unfurling off into the sea as the whale, they hope for the whale to tire out and the whale sometimes dives and can pull these little boats down with him. The whale goes on a Nantucket sleigh ride as we heard last time. So Pip... Is in the middle of this and he panics and he jumps in the water and he gets tangled up in the harpoon line. And Stubb, the second mate, orders the line cut, which means they lose the whale at the other end of the line. And he tells Pip, remember, this is 1851, slavery is still legal in the South. And Stubb says, Pip, don't do that again. We can't afford to lose a whale to save you. You're worth less than a whale, he says. He says, a whale would sell for 30 times what you would sell for in Alabama, Pip. Alabama, of course, being a slave state. It's a world where a human being is not a human being. He's an object that can be valued based on market forces, just like a whale. We can think of all the parts of a whale. Weigh the whale, add it up. How many barrels of oil? How much uh, ambergris? How much whalebone do we get out of this? How much blubber? And so on. It's like saying to Pip, we'd save you. If it was just the rope, we'd probably save you. You're worth more than that. And we know what you're worth because we know what you would fetch in Alabama. So, what happens? they go out again. Pip again leaps out of the boat in a panic and Stubb moves on. Sorry. Sorry, Pip. We told you. We told you what you're worth. Can't argue with it, can you? The market is valuing you, the market in Alabama, and we have a market to, to tell us what a whale is worth. We got to go with the whale. The whale's worth more. They leave Pip in the water to die. The Pequod happens to pass him and saves him. Pip, after that, descends into a kind of madness. He wanders around the deck of the ship crying out, Pip! Reward for Pip! Which is a novelist. The novelist Melville. Working with all of his powers. He's Pip, reward for Pip, he's echoing the language on advertisements for slaves at the time, for slaves being returned, which, of course, is not just a novelist's trick. It is what Pip would have in his mind, isn't it? That's the world he's grown up with. That's the world he's grown up in. Melville is cutting very close to the bone here, and he's not doing it from the safety of the 21st century. He's doing it in 1851. It's no wonder critics at the time didn't comment on this passage much. It was either too close to notice or too painful to dwell upon. Pip, reward for Pip. I'm just an object, he might as well have been saying. You people, all of you humans, who prattle on about love and generosity and charity? Who claim to be living according to Christ-like principles? Remember, Ahab is a Quaker, the most pacifist of all the the Christianity strands, famous for its passivity or pacificity, I should say, and they were all. Ready to just move on. This is Stubbs World. Hmm. Do a little back of the envelope calculating here. Whale. Worth a lot, Pip. Not worth as much. And Pip is saying, just like you'd sell me in Alabama, just like you post rewards for my return here in the land of the free, or it's floating equivalent anyway, it's microcosm of the land of the free, and you were just willing to let me die. His madness is like Shakespeare's fools, full of truths that no one else has the guts to say. And it's the one place where Ahab's grinch-like heart awakens. He says, quote, Oh, ye frozen heavens! Ye did beget this luckless child and have abandoned him. Here, boy, Ahab's cabin shall be Pip's home henceforth. Come, I feel prouder leading thee by thy black hand than though I grasped an emperor's end quote. What do we want from a novel is to present ideas like this for us to grapple with, isn't it? We might agree, we might disagree, we might disagree with Melville, we might disagree with one another in our interpretations of what this is saying and what this means, but our powers are being called forth, as one of our History of Literature podcast heroes, Dr. Johnson, would say. Andrew Dale Banco, a modern-day biographer of Melville, was writing just at the start of the 21st century. I think he would say this about the 21st as well as the 20th century. But he said, quote, Melville was a 19th century author writing for a 20th century audience. He used stream of consciousness long before Stein or Joyce. He acknowledged America's predatory power as well as its great promise. He defied convention in writing about sex. And perhaps most shockingly of all, he took seriously the possibility of a godless universe. In his time, there was a limited market for these insights and innovations. End quote. Which brings us to question number one. Call him Ahab. We started with call him Ishmael. That was our question number 10. Noting that biographical-minded readers have plenty of details to entertain themselves with, finding the church where Melville himself heard a sermon, much like the one Ishmael did before he went on the voyage, and noting Melville's uh, the roots of Melville's sea voyages and so on, the parallels between the voyages of the real life Akushnet, and the Pequod, and on we go, all the way to Ishmael's curious spirit, and generous empathy, and open-mindedness, and so on, which we see reflected in Melville, and say, look at this. Here's Ishmael, underappreciated, like Melville, two peas in a pod, but the people who call this Ahab's book rather than Ishmael's, are not wrong either. Ahab runs away with the story, kind of like the Satan of Milton's Paradise Lost. We root for goodness. We appreciate and admire goodness, but evil sometimes captivates us in a way that goodness cannot. We root for love. We stare at hate. For all of Ishmael's ideas and arguments and Carlylean asides and digressions and philosophizing, Ahab is the guy whose presence we most feel in this book. He has a classic entrance. He's talked about long before he ever actually appears. He's more than mysterious. He's unfathomable. We can say that he has a motive for his obsession. The whale got his leg, but that doesn't begin to explain it. Plenty of people have lost a limb without descending into whatever it is, whatever place it is that Ahab descends into. They might forgive, they might understand, they might focus on something other than revenge. It's much more likely to be the case that such a human does not spend the rest of his or her life pursuing a whale with this kind of a frenzy. Ahab has a wife and son, That's easy to forget. It barely comes up. It's the moment when Ahab says, what am I doing? I've wasted my life on this pursuit. And Starbuck, always the more reasonable, says, yes, Captain, let's err on the side of caution. I'm married too. Also with a boy, we can return to Nantucket and see our families. And Ahab says, yes, yes. And Starbuck says, yes, we can return. And Ahab says, yeah, nah. Nah. (laughs) <laughs> let's go for the whale. <laughs> let's hear this passage. It's another great paragraph. It's where Ahab is, fi- is having his final second thoughts. He says, quote, Oh, Starbuck, it is a mild, mild wind and a mild-looking sky. On such a day, very much such a sweetness as this, I struck my first whale, a boy harpooner of 18, 40, 40, 40 years ago. Ago! Forty years of continual wailing! Forty years of privation and peril and storm time! Forty years on the pitiless sea! For forty years has Ahab forsaken the peaceful land! For forty years to make war on the horrors of the deep! Ay, and yes, Starbuck, out of those forty years, I have not spent three ashore! When I think of this life I have led, the desolation of solitude it has been, the masoned walled town of a captain's exclusiveness, which admits but small entrance to any sympathy from the green country without, oh, weariness, heaviness, guinea coast slavery of solitary command. When I think of all this, only half suspected, not so keenly known to me before, and how for Forty years I have fed upon dry, salted fare, fit emblem of the dry nourishment of my soil. When the poorest landsman has had fresh fruit to his daily hand and broken the world's fresh bread to my moldy crusts. Away, whole oceans away from that young girl wife I wedded past fifty and sailed for Cape Horn the next day leaving but one dent in my marriage pillow. Wife, wife, rather a widow with her husband alive. Ay, I, I widowed that poor girl when I married her, Starbuck. And then the madness, the frenzy, the boiling blood and the smoking brow with which for a thousand lowerings old Ahab has furiously, foamingly chased his prey. More a demon than a man. Ay, ay, what a forty years fool. Fool! Old fool has old Ahab been. Why this strife of the chase? Why weary and palsy the arm at the oar and the iron and the lance? How the richer or better is Ahab now? Behold, oh, Starbuck, is it not hard that with this weary load I bear one poor leg should have been snatched from under me? Here, brush this old hair aside. It blinds me that I seem to weep. Locks so gray did never grow but from out some ashes. But do I look very old? So very, very old, Starbuck, I feel deadly faint, bowed and humped, as though I were Adam, staggering beneath the piled centuries since paradise. God. 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 Crack my heart. Stave my brain. Mockery. Mockery. Bitter. Biting mockery of gray hairs, have I lived enough joy to wear ye, and seem and feel thus intolerably old? Close. Stand close to me, Starbuck. Let me look into a human eye. It is better than to gaze into sea or sky, better than to gaze upon God. By the green land, by the bright hearthstone, this is the magic glass, man. I see my wife and my child in thine eye. No. No. No, stay on board, on board, lower not when I do. When branded Ahab gives chase to Moby Dick, that hazard shall not be thine. No, no, not with the faraway home I see in that eye. And Starbuck says, yes, noble soul, grand old heart, after all, this is just a fish. Don't give away your life for this evil fish. Don't give away your life and ours. We can go back to Nantucket and grow old together, be with our families. And he says, Captain, Nantucket has some mild blue days. You can still see them. And Ahab seems to consider mild blue days. They have. They have. I have seen them. Some summer days in the morning about this time. Yes, it is his noon nap now. The boy vivaciously wakes, sits up in bed, and his mother tells him of me, of cannibal old me, how I am abroad upon the deep, but will yet come back to dance him again. And Starbuck says, yes, we're done here. Let's go back to Nantucket, Captain. He says, quote, come, my captain, study out the course and let us away. see, see. The boy's face from the window. The boy's hand on the hill. Everyone in the world would view that as a preferable outcome for Ahab. Stop chasing this whale. Don't take the risk. Go home. Be with your wife and son. But tragic heroes are gonna tragic as they say. The book continues. But Ahab's glance was averted. Like a blighted fruit tree, he shook and cast his last cindered apple to the soil. What is it? What nameless, inscrutable unearthly thing is it what cozening hidden lord and master and cruel remorseless emperor commands me that against all natural lovings and longings i so keep pushing and crowding and jamming myself on all the time recklessly making me ready to do what in my own proper natural heart i durst not so much as dare is ahab ahab is it i God, or who, that lifts this arm? But if the great sun move not of himself, but is as an errand boy in heaven, nor one single star can revolve, but by some invisible power, how then can this one small heart beat, this one small brain think thoughts? Unless God does that beating, does that thinking, does that living, and not I. By heaven, man, we are turned round and round in this world like yonder windlass, and fate is the handspike. and all the time, lo, that smiling sky and this unsounded sea. Look, see yon albacore, who put it into him to chase and fang that flying fish. Where do murderers go, man? Who's to doom when the judge himself is dragged to the bar? But it is a mild, mild wind and a mild-looking sky, and the air smells now as if it blew from a faraway meadow. They have been making hay somewhere under the slopes of the Andes, Starbuck, and the mowers are sleeping among the new-mown hay. Sleeping? Ay, toil how we may, we all sleep at last on the field. Sleep? Ay, and rust amid greenness. As last year's scythes flung down and left in the half-cut swaths, Starbuck! But blanched to a corpse's hue with despair, the mate had stolen away. I wanted to say in this question number one, I wanted to say there's a side of Melville that was similar to Ahab. Essentially, Raymond Weaver wrote in that first article for The Nation, Melville was a mystic, a treasure seeker, a mystery monger, a delver after hidden things spiritual and material. It was Melville's abiding craving to achieve some total and undivined possession of the very heart of reality. In pursuing his view of a novel, the one Melville wanted to write, the one that belonged on a shelf with Shakespeare, Melville cast aside the comfortable life that could have been his. He could have kept writing best-selling adventure stories that challenged no one. He didn't need to try to write such a wild and difficult book. A thorny English garden, as one reviewer had it. He didn't need to make the attempt and didn't need to live in anonymity. A rejected, somewhat humiliated man, obsessed with his past and the fate of his present. As lonely as Ahab on the deck, peering over the side at the sea. Although Melville spends hundreds of pages as Ishmael, I often feel when reading the book like we are in the position of Ishmael. Melville is our captain. He's the obsessed one. He's in pursuit of something unfathomable, and his pursuit is relentless. We somehow signed up for the voyage. We're free. We readers are free to leave at any time. We can put this book down or never pick it up at all, but we can also stay and watch Ahab surrender to whatever spirit is driving him. Maybe we recognize that spirit in ourselves, maybe to some degree at least. Maybe it's like Kafka, where we can recognize it, but it doesn't dominate us. Or maybe it helps us recognize it when we see it dominating our fellow humans. We have a million examples of love emerging victorious. We know what to think about that. But here's a hero in Ahab who finishes where he began, whose final speech Contains these words. To the last I grapple with thee. From hell's heart I stab at thee. For hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. And we're Ishmael watching this happen. We're the mate stealing away from Ahab blanched to a corpse's hue. That blood has drained from our faces. We know what we're seeing is it I, God, or who that lifts this arm? And we know that what we're seeing, what Melville is showing us, is not humanity at its finest. It's humanity. Period. And that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. We'll be back soon with some non- Melvillian Episodes. Thank goodness Moby Dick is exhilarating but exhausting too. I've been in kind of a funk rereading it and planning to talk about it. Where to begin? I hope we began in the right place and, and ended in the right place too and maybe covered some good territory along the way. We will have some interviews coming up shortly for you. Lots of good guests are on tap talking about some incredible authors. I was thinking maybe Margaret Fuller might be a good one with Willa Cather shortly thereafter, along with our uh, Early Black Lives interview, and then Elizabeth Bishop. And maybe the only thing that will nudge me off that course as I look it over now is the fact that it's an awful lot of Americans in a row. So maybe we'll sneak in a little Catullus travel back to ancient Rome for that, or sprinkle in a little Milton. Why not? Always room for more Milton on this here show. Speaking of this here show, we're glad you're here for this, although we're wrapping this one up. So we hope you enjoy our archives or come back for the next one. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.